Welcome to Silicon Valley Vibes, a podcast from SVLG that talks to the people driving the conversations that matter for our innovation ecosystem. I'm your AI announcer, Vivi. Today's special episode features some of the fantastic speakers from our recent Sustainable Growth 2023 Summit. From top Biden administration officials to activist billionaires, bringing you that solid sustainability content are our SVLG hosts, Nadia Anderson, Chief of Staff for SVLG and SVP of Strategy, as well as her co-host, Peter Leroux Munoz, SVLG General Counsel and SVP of Tech and Innovation. Welcome to the show. I'm Nadia Anderson. And I'm Peter Leroux Munoz. And we're excited to be bringing you a very special episode of Silicon Valley Vibes. On this episode of Silicon Valley Vibes, we're going to be resharing some of our recent conversations from our amazing SVLG event, Sustainable Growth 2023. You know, Peter, I must say, as a relatively new member of the SVLG team, witnessing the magic happen both behind the scenes and firsthand when it comes to the Sustainable Growth Summit, it was definitely the event to be at. The team absolutely knocked it out of the park. And we also were able to have some really thought-provoking and timely conversations about what's next when it comes to sustainability. You're right, Nadia. The event highlighted real challenges around our collective climate crisis, community sustainability, and equity. And what made it so great were our amazing speakers like Michael Regan, the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, and Tom Steyer, billionaire, environmental activist, investor, and former presidential candidate. And he was pulling no punches. But first, let's lead off with the biggest speaker of the event the Honorable Jennifer Granholm, the U.S. Department of Energy Secretary. Granholm got to take a ride and see some amazing zero emission vehicles while in Silicon Valley. She also talked with SVLG's CEO, Ahmad Thomas, about the intersections between innovation and environment, but also dropped some gems about what's needed if we're gonna continue this momentum and remove carbon from the environment and making sure that we bring all communities along on this journey. She also spoke about her leadership in shaping America's future of sustainable power and offered thoughts and encouraging words about driving national economic growth in the same space. Let's listen in. Welcome, Secretary Granholm. And I, I gotta say at the top, you are a, a Cal grad. You went to high school down the street in San Carlos. I hope we're showing you love when you come back to California. I appreciate it. I'm looking forward to getting a box lunch when I leave. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, I will jump right to it. We've got about 20 minutes with the secretary and some time for Q&A. This is Silicon Valley. There's no writing questions on a card. So get your questions in on your app, and I'll make sure to get to as many of them as we can. But first, funding and investment. I want to talk about investment, innovation, and implementation. So you have a once in a generation, truly a pivotal moment with the Inflation Reduction Act with the bipartisan infrastructure law to invest in clean energy technologies. How's that going? Can you give us oh my some God. updates around I'm that? sure <laughs> you all are seeing what's happening across the country. It is it's amazing that policy actually works. What these bills, and I would include the, I, the troika of bills, right? I would include the CHIPS Act in there, right. the Invest in America agenda, we're calling it. It is crazy. It's just unleashed this wave of investment across the nation. So if you just look at, in, in my column of the world, just look at the battery space. Um, 106, now of course we all know that the components and batteries um, often have been made in Asia. Um, 
We want to be competitive. Since uh, these bills have been passed, 160 battery companies have announced they're coming or expanding in the United States. And when I say battery companies, I'm talking about the full supply chain, anode, cathode, separator material, electrolyte, as well as uh, extraction processing. That whole supply chain soup to nuts uh, is uh, over $100 billion are, have been announced and are being in, invested across the country. 51 sold, now again, you know, we know solar panels, uh, China had a, a, a strategic plan to be able to, you know, have the corner of the market in, in solar panel manufacturing. Uh, because of the passage of these bills and the incentives for manufacturing and siting, 51 and counting, uh, since these laws were passed, have announced they're coming and expanding. I mean, it is just astonishing to see this wave of investment happening across the country and happening in places that have been left behind, honestly. Right. It's just, it's super exciting. Let me just give you one example. Yeah. Uh, two weeks ago, I was in Weirton, West Virginia. Uh, Weirton is a former steel town. And the, when the steel industry was brought to its knees because of dumping and globalization and, and competition, the steel factory in Weirton, which employed thousands of people, shut down. Um, two weeks ago, I was there. And on the place where they forged steel, we uh, were groundbreaking for a, an iron air battery company, utility scale battery company. The whole community was there. The mayor, the city council, talked to this one city council guy named Tim Connell, and he said, my grandfather worked at that steel mill, my father worked at that steel mill, I worked at that steel mill, I wanted my kids to work at that steel mill, but the plant closed, my kids moved away. They've lost a third of the population in that town because of it was basically a one-company town. And now they saw, we gave them, through this policy, the gift of rebirth, really, right. a phoenix rising from the ashes. And that story is happening kind of in pockets all across the country. Well, I would, yeah, that's yeah, worth a round of applause. Great, right? It's so great. Well, first of all, thank you. Thank you for your leadership. Thank you for that transformative change that you're driving via these investments. A, a bit of a parochial question, maybe place-based to Silicon Valley. Where do you see, for you've, you've got tech and innovation leaders spread throughout this audience, where are the opportunities for our, our Silicon Valley companies and the executives here connected to these investments in your view? Well, as you can imagine, a lot of these companies across the nation uh, we're, we're born here, right? The ideas were born here. I think, um, you know, this is something that I uh, have long said, you know, I was governor of Michigan too, and it, we used to compete uh, against California and Texas and other places for manufacturing. Sure. I mean, you used to be the Silicon Valley manufacturing right. uh, group, true. right? Yeah. Um, but that's gone. And I think California needs to do a better job of Honestly, and that, you know, who am I? I'm just the Secretary of Energy, but I was a governor, and I know Just that, the Secretary of Energy. <laughs> no, but I'm just saying, yeah. you're competing against these states that are all in right. on, on reluring these, these here. They've got, um, they've got state economic development agencies that are, cap that are sort of layering on top of what the federal tax credits are to make them irresistible. They have done permitting reform on the state level. We've got to do it on the federal level, and I know this is a question that's happening uh, on the right. state level. They're, they're, they're making the case. So all of that is to say, 
I'm not telling you anything you don't know because obviously so many of these great ideas uh, were, were born here and the question is how do you keep them here? And we want to, we want, we're agnostic as to where these uh, investments go. Obviously these are private sector decisions about where they go, but they are going to go to places where they feel like they've got a better uh, edge. And, and while nobody compete, can compete with California's uh, brains and weather, although you are starting to get, um, you know, pushback on that too because of these extreme weather events sure. and the pulling out of State Farm and insurance costs and all of that. But whatever you can do to help bring the costs down to make yourselves competitive and to speed things up, I think uh, would do would go a long way to making more manufacturing come to this area. Well, it's well said. It certainly resonates with our audience, and we're grateful to the governor for his uh, remarks that uh, he had shared via video at the top, I think being able to compete with those other states, given our high cost to, to live and operate here, it's very real, those incentives. Um, totally, and I'm sure, I mean, I don't know if any of you have had governors come to your companies and say, why would you stay in California? It's so expensive, blah, 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 blah. You come to my city. I did it. I, when I was governor of Michigan, I would come here, try to get companies to come to Michigan. We'd give you zero taxes. Come on. Um, and, you know, you're competing against that all across the nation. Right. So anyway. Right. Well, on innovation, what is exciting you most when you look at where you're investments are, are going when you look at future technologies? Yeah, we've launched a series of um, energy earth shots, we call them, on next generation technology, but especially to bring down the cost of technology. So for example, one of the earth shots that I love is on enhanced geothermal. I, what keeps me up at night is having clean dispatchable baseload power, right? Mm -hmm. And um, we want to make sure that renewables are as baseload-like when you add storage, but um, there are also solutions like geothermal. And with advances in um, fracking technology, you can go down in the same skill set that the oil and gas industry uses for subsurface extraction of oil can be used for subsurface extraction of heat. And so the heat beneath our feet to me, uh, especially the enhanced geothermal, where they have new drilling techniques to be able to almost go, not anywhere, but close to deeper uh, deeper bore wells than you would otherwise have been able to do. That's very exciting to me. Um, we have got a series of earth shots. One is on clean hydrogen. We want hydrogen to cost $1 for one kilogram within one decade. When I say clean, I'm talking about next to zero um, carbon mm. emitting. So electrolyzer-based hydrogen is, uh, is really the gold standard. Within a decade. Within a decade, yes. We want floating offshore wind platforms, this is another earth shot, bring down the cost to $45 per megawatt uh, hour uh, by 2035. We have a series of shots like that uh, that, that are very exciting to me. One thing that's really exciting to me though, um, which is, uh, you know, the president has a decadal vision for uh, fusion. And so nuclear fusion, of course, where you're fusing atoms together, which uh, creates energy that does not create waste, unlike fission, where you're splitting atoms um, or atomic particles. That, to me, is very exciting. And of course, if any of you follow this at all, but at uh, Lawrence Livermore National Lab. We should have Livermore folks here. We have Livermore folks here? We should. Right, right. there in the back. Wait, From the lab? A shout out to or the lab. Or people who are 
working in Livermore. Can they explain that fusion process to the us? The fusion caucus in the room. Uh, we, you know, we achieved something that had been tried for six decades. They tried to, it's hard. Fusion is really hard to do this, but they achieved it on a very large, you know, with huge user tool. The, the lab has 192 lasers that it points at a little target. But it, but it proved that it's possible. And so now, abundant energy from fusion is not just a question of weather, but, but, but when. And that's very exciting to me as well. Well, you think of a moonshot or an earth shot. Is that aspirational, or is it? Realistic. No, it's. Your, I mean, we yeah. we're very. You know, we have 17 national laboratories. We are a science-based organization at the Department of Energy. So when we are doing roadmaps for Earth shots, these are they're. You know, we are not intending to defy. Um, you know, physics. Sure. We believe that this can happen, and so we are putting a lot of. Uh, in order to get to those steps, we fund next steps to break down the barriers. We've identified what those are and aligned our funding opportunities to make sure that we hit those targets. Well, touching on investment, innovation, I want to speak to implementation before we open it up for questions. Now, in California, and I know you're well aware of this, we have CEQA, which of course is well intended but has really been misused, where we have projects that aren't able to come online for years which actually has a, a negative climate impact, I believe, because these are clean projects sometimes that are delayed. And I guess I would ask you just a, the high-level question, where does streamlining permitting at, at the state level, where does that fit into these plans? If you have great investments and can't actually get something built, that's a problem. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly a problem when you consider the viability of a project, right? right? I mean, so for example, uh, we are uh, rolling out all the time funding opportunity announcements under the bipartisan infrastructure law. One of the funding opportunities that's coming up, uh, we, we did a first round of battery selections and we'll have a second round coming up of billions of dollars of opportunity. The, the people who evaluate these, these are merit-reviewed panels. It's very, uh, they first review the technical capability, right? And they also review how commercially viable is this, is there a strategy to make sure that there's offtake, that there's a workforce strategy, that there's a community benefits plan. But the viability of a project and can you get it out the door is, is important. So, but I, I say this on, uh, you know, California's got an issue, the federal government has an issue on permitting too, obviously we've been talking uh, about that on the, you know, in Washington. Um, the by, the um, uh, debt ceiling deal had some uh, changes. One of them I think was helpful, which is it has a shot clock now on being able to get environmental assessments uh, and environmental impact statements done. Great, because that provides certainty. Uh, but there's still a lot more to do. We have to add, I mean, just as an example, we've got to, as a nation, add, basically triple the size of our, uh, of our electric grid if we're going to put all the renewable energy on it needed to get to the goal of 100% clean electricity by 2035. We have to add 2,000 gigawatts of clean energy to our nation's electric grid. We need a transmission grid that can do that. We need permitting that can get that transmission grid up. I, you know, for, and, and these environmental laws, fantastic uh, intentions. And nobody wants to denigrate protecting 
the environment. But Bill McKibben had a great uh, article recently, and he's, an, you know, he's a, a very strong environmentalist, right. right? Environmental activist. And he has come to the conclusion that um, delay on these projects is a form of climate denial. Oh, interesting. That a lot of uh, environmental activists have used these laws to protect, of course, the environment and used it for the purposes of delay. But now we know what has to happen. I mean, you just have to look at these wildfires in, you know, yeah. in Canada. I mean, they're experiencing what we experienced here a couple of years ago, right? right. This Mars like experience with the, the smoke turning the air orange. Um, it's everywhere. We spent $165 billion as a nation last year just clean, cleaning up after these extreme weather events. It is, it is on our doorstep. So we can no longer, the, the very uh, environmental area or species that we are seeking to protect with these laws are going to be damaged by climate change if we do not act with alacrity. So. Bottom line is, I think every state, including California and the federal government, have to get our act together to realize you can, you will protect the environment if you act on climate. Well, that deserves a round of applause. Yeah. We so we so deeply appreciate that here. If you take one example of where public-private partnerships and, and your leadership has been so successful, uh, Applied Materials, and a shout out to Applied Materials. We had the vice president here a couple weeks ago, right, with a $4 billion investment in the R&D center that's coming from CHIPS, or partly leveraged by CHIPS funding. If you cannot move forward quickly to get that project built because it's tied up in these permitting fights, it has ramifications that go well beyond just our regional economic impact yeah. when we look at chip supply for the country. And so what our governor's proposing includes those chips projects, you know, as part of the streamlining. That's great. So we appreciate what you shared and also how I think direct you were about that because that's a significant issue for us. Uh, I want to touch on uh, equity quickly before we turn to audience questions. And uh, to audience members, we will be turning to your questions next. But the equity action plan, maybe just at a higher level, I think the focus of the Biden administration, your focus on, yeah. on equity, it is important. And in the time that we're in right now, trying to build a more equitable society, our companies across this room focused on DEI, it's very meaningful to us. So I would appreciate any reflections yeah. you might be able to share about your uh, commitment. And again, thank you for all of your work in supporting equitable policies. Yeah. I mean, first of all, um, the first uh, executive order that the president signed is this Justice 40 executive order, which is that 40% of the benefits of all of these investments should go to communities that have been left behind, that we need to right some wrongs. And so how does that look inside of these um, funding opportunities, for example? So at the Department of Energy, as one example, we evaluate proposals that come in if uh, based upon the merit, like I described, uh, and their viability, but also whether they have a community benefits plan. In fact, 20% of the score of how we evaluate is, is the community at the table? And is there a meaningful community benefits plan? Nothing uh, to the community without the community. Nothing should happen to the community without the community. And so, you know, we, uh, this, so many of the tax credits and the adders in the laws are to try to um, embed structural equity right. when we've had structural inequality. And so the 
add, I mean, just as one example, which is just astonishing, if you want to do a solar project, for example, a distributed solar project, rooftop solar, and you decide that you want to go to a, um, a low or moderate income uh, area, a uh, disadvantaged community, and, uh, and put your solar panels on uh, homes that are for low and moderate income people. You get your 30% tax credit off the top. You get another 20% if it involves low-income housing. You get another 10% for going to a disadvantaged community. So now that's 60%. You get another 10% for domestic content. You can get a 70% tax credit by choosing to locate this project in a disadvantaged community. That is a specific effort to lure and to make irresistible investments in communities where people have not invested in the past. And that makes me very proud. Well, it is. It's certainly deeply needed, and I think that's a good segue. One of the audience question is about uh, funding. And it says, uh, most federal funding goes to big cities and now rural disadvantaged ones. But many of us are in small, suburban, under-resourced communities hammered by big transportation like SFO. Maybe someone in San Mateo County asking this. Uh, what can be done for middle uh, cut-through communities? As a governor, I'm sure you appreciate the question. Yeah, I mean, there, I, I encourage any community who may be represented here to make sure you go to, I mean, I'll say the DOE website, but this is true for the, um, you know, if there's an agricultural interest, and it may be an agricultural and rural community, it may be a, a community that um, has a porch or is bisected by a big piece of infrastructure. Every one of the departments, whether it's Department of Agriculture, Department of Transportation, Department of Energy, or um, the EPA, we have all got significant funds now to try to repair the damage caused by previous decisions. And so, um, and we also, depending on uh, you know, the size of the community, especially this is true for tribal communities, we offer significant technical assistance right. as well to be able to help communities uh, be able to apply. And a lot of us, it's true in, in the Department of Energy, we're revamping a, a lot of our programming especially as it relates to small and rural and disadvantaged communities to make the application process much more simple. Um, now, that is not true in the larger programs. Uh, those are still pretty complicated. If you went to the loan programs office, I don't know if Jigger Shah has spoken to this uh, entity, but I'm sure a number of you know him. He runs our loan programs office. He's got $400 billion to be able to invest in projects that fill in the supply chain gaps and that, that really um, will continue to drive incredible change uh, in terms of manufacturing. But their, their process is rightfully rigorous because they want these projects to succeed and they want to be a partner in making sure it succeeds. So we've got involved processes for bigger projects and we have all of us projects or funding opportunities for communities that have been um, damaged by prior you know, policy decisions. And, um, and so I encourage you to check out our websites. Well, thank you, thank you. Uh, we have an ESG question. There's a little bit of color here, which I'll skip uh, and get to the question. I, I will say ESG is becoming this four-letter word. It's not a four-letter word to Silicon Valley and, and to the companies that you see here. 
But uh, the question is, where do you see the biggest challenges and opportunities uh, for public-private sector partnership around ESG, you know, climate and clean energy? You know, I do think, uh, to your point about ESG being, uh, I'll just say being politicized, honestly, and it's really so uh, crazy. However, I will say this, that, um, you know, our, all of our stuff we consider to be private sector-led, government-enabled. And um, for us, making sure that, um, uh, that a business that we're funding uh, has got goals that are consistent with the goals of the nation is really important. Uh, and it's also important, we were just saying backstage, it's, ESG is also important for recruitment purposes. Sure. You want to retain young people. They want to be part of a company with a mission and with a vision and with you know, a responsibility to community and to the planet. So I, I, I feel like this is a, this pushback on things like ESG or Disney, whatever, is, is, <laughs> is kind of a, uh, a thing of the moment. Mm. But honestly, if you're not considering your sustainability practices, if you're not then you're, it's, it's, it's an anti-bottom line decision. I mean, you right. have to be able to do that to be able to, um, you know, to have a return and to res be responsive to your, to your board, your investors, et cetera. So I, I feel like this too shall pass because it seems so anti-business, anti-science, anti-planet. I hope so. I, I hope so. Knock on, and, and knock on wood. Knock on wood. <laughs> well, I'd love to give you the floor here to close. And again, Secretary, thank you so much for coming out here, for sharing your perspective with us. We're grateful for your tremendous leadership. What would you leave us with to, to inspire the climate change leaders in this room, what you're optimistic about as, as you close? I'm so bullish on what is happening right now. I feel like our, our, our team at the Department of Energy, we just pinch ourselves every day because we feel like, oh my God, what a time to be in this space. And you in the private sector who are in this, you know, clean energy space. Wow, that is so powerful. You well, thank you very much. Thank you, Secretary. You have never had the momentum that we have right now. The United States has become the irresistible nation to invest in if you are a clean energy business. And if you look just at the data coming out of deployment this morning, uh, Wood McKenzie was saying that our investments in deployment of solar in the first quarter was the highest it's ever been. The fact that um, Bloomberg New Energy Finance this morning said that they've revised their electric vehicle uptake numbers and that by 2026, 28% of new vehicles sold will be EVs. These data points just keep coming. And um, I don't know, this is so exciting of a time for the now as well as for what we are going to do to bend the curve to heal uh, our planet. And it's true, I'll just say this globally as well, other nations are looking to what we have done and are seeking to either replicate or their businesses are seeking to move here. So we're really, uh, this is an amazing time. Sometimes, you know, when you're, when you're in the middle of a history-making moment, an inflection point, you don't know it because you're in the middle of it. Mm. 
But I think we'll look back and say, oh my God, this was a consequential moment where we really started to heal the planet. We'll be back with more Silicon Valley vibes after this. Silicon Valley Leadership Group hosts dozens of events every year with top leaders, area experts, and newsmakers from around the world. From dynamic roundtables to industry forums to our amazing signature events, like our Energy and Sustainability Summit and our upcoming annual forum. And your sponsorship can be a part of it. To find out how, go to svlg.org forward slash events. Hey everyone, it's your favorite AIVV. And now back to your favorite podcast, Silicon Valley Vibes. Welcome back to SVV. So Nadia, we're gonna shift gears a little and listen in on a conversation between Tom Steyer, environmental activist and investor, and SVLG's head of sustainability, Tim McRae. Tom talks about the nature of sustainability and housing. You know, Peter, this was a very interesting conversation. I was first introduced to Tom Steyer during his presidential campaign back in the day, and since then have watched him reinvent himself and engage in some of the most pressing topics that are facing our society. As you mentioned early on, he definitely did not pull any punches, but I don't want to spoil it for folks, so let's listen in. So Tom, you're a business leader, philanthropist, and activist, as I just shared, who's been quite vocal on climate issues for over a decade now. And I'd like to know, just off the top, where do you see the human society with respect to the climate crisis? So if you look at the information that's been coming out over the last five months in 2023, the information in, from the natural world is pretty consistently worse than expected, both in terms of the pace of warming for a variety of reasons, including the fact that we're cleaning up aerosols from the air, which in fact have slowed the pace of climate change, but also to the speed with which the glaciers in Greenland and West Antarctica are melting. You know, the information is as we get better science, as we get more detailed granular um, studies, what we see is that the pace is very substantially faster than what scientists thought two, five, 10 years ago. And in general, if you look at virtually any piece of information from the natural world, it is a sign that in fact we're not bending the curve and that if anything, the pace of change is increasing. On the other hand, as someone who spends the overwhelming bulk of his waking hours looking at what's possible to do about it, the technology, what is deployable now, what's in the pipeline, the costs compared to the status quo fossil fuel solutions. The tech is great. You know, I feel extremely optimistic about our ability to win in the marketplace, you know, in very broad scope. And so I think that this is gonna be, for those two reasons, an absolutely critical decade in terms of our ability to bend the curve and prove that in fact, that the technology S curve that we've seen, not just for years or decades, but literally for centuries is in place, that in fact, these technologies are following that S curve and that 
the kinds of things that I've been trying to do in the company I started a couple years ago with my old friend and partner, Katie Hall, that we're gonna win in the marketplace and we're gonna prove that in fact technology does make a big difference and that we can in fact radically change the projections much better than people understand going forward. It's gonna be a civil society thing. We need, it's a all of society response, you know, of course including you know, political rulings and policy, but I absolutely believe that we have the capability in our hands to do a great job on this and have it be a great win for the United States and the people of the world. So you've been quite vocal on climate issues for over a decade now. I'm just gonna go a little bit through your journey. <laughs> In 2009, you started funding nonpartisan research institutions at Stanford and Yale. And we just had a wonderful moment backstage with Famida Bangert, who was on Stanford's staff and doing lots of great stuff and saying, like, he was the trustee. He was the one who kept pushing it at Stanford. So even, even before you may have heard of him, he was, he was being the rabble-rousle behind the scenes at Stanford as a trustee. Then you moved on to bankrolling political efforts including no on tw Prop 23 that tried to undermine California's global, global warming law in 2010. That was successful. We beat back Prop 23. Yes on Prop 39 in 2012. That closed a tax loophole to fund some clean energy investments in schools. And you also founded Next Gen America to activate young people to act politically around the climate crisis. So what did you learn about the effectiveness of spending money on grassroots activation? What was kind of the best investments that you were making at that time? So the way that I always thought about political investing, and let me say, the stuff at Stanford, just to put it in perspective, we put in money as grants for people on the Stanford campus to do in clean tech and climate response what Stanford has done for 80 years, 90 years in information technology, saying you have the ability to change this if you commercialize it, so we gave money to young people and postdocs and young professors to start companies, and those companies are worth between nine and $10 billion now. So it was, we believe in the ability of the private sector to respond. The reason we went into, but this is an all of society thing, so whenever I did something like No on 23, we also ran a whole bunch of clean energy propositions in California, but also in other states across the country, or when I started the largest youth voter mobilization effort in American history, the point was partly what substantially is going to happen. No on 23, we're going to prevent two Texas oil companies from rolling back California state energy laws about clean tech and basically you know, our ability to regulate ourselves and reduce our emissions. California does about half the emissions per capita of other states. But it was also a point that the oil companies can't tell us what to do. In terms of young people voting, it is to have people vote who care about climate. But it is also about young people vote at half the rate of other American citizens. If you want to have a fair representative democracy, we need the young people to vote like other people so their voices are heard comparably representationally as everyone else so we have a fairer democracy. So in every case, we were trying to do something substantive but also something that had a message to it 
that people might not draw or they might draw, we'd try and make the point, but a lot of times people didn't pay attention to it, but it, we wanted to feel like substantively we're doing something that absolutely makes a difference in and of itself and that we hope will be an example of something that shows a broader value system, which we also care about, and if we can get both, then it's a home run. So let's transition to the current day. So you decided to found, co-found Galvanized Climate Solutions, which you just mentioned. What does this investment firm do, and why did you choose this as your next step? So, you know, I basically had run, started an investment firm called Fairlawn Capital for 27 years. And at the same time, I was a partner and on the investment committee of a private equity firm called Hellman Friedman. And I stopped doing it at the end of 2012, just to focus on being a climate advocate. And I did that for eight years in a whole bunch of different ways, some of which I was just describing. But I feel like we've won this argument. If you poll people in the United States of America, if you poll registered Republicans in America, and you ask them, should the government make a robust climate response? Depending on how you ask the question, which of course matters in polls, between 57 and 75% of registered Republicans will say yes. This, and there's always gonna be people who say no. I mean, if you do, you know, do you believe in evolution, 20% of Americans say no. So you're not getting them. They've had a chance to decide whether they believe in evolution. They've had a chance to decide whether they believe in a climate response. They've decided not to. So I felt like really what we need to do is what I was saying at the, the outset when Tim asked me, how do you see this whole problem? It's like, we need to go into the marketplace and win. That's actually what we need to do. We need to execute on our capabilities on a broad scale and win. And we need to do that you know, as fast as we can, as big as we can, and scale as broadly as we can. That's the goal. So I felt like, look, I'm a professional investor. I did it for more than 30 years. Okay, this is something that I actually have spent a lot of time trying to understand the scope of this problem, what causes it, what are the different verticals that are important, how tough is it to address them? What are the implications? And I felt like, okay, so it seems like that is an opportunity to pull together the last 40 years of my life and see if I can make a difference in something that I am, of course, incredibly committed to. And you know, to me, it's can we broadly bring expertise and money to solve this problem across the investment you know, across the, the scope of investment activities. And so that's what we're trying to do. So let's focus in on real estate. We've got, as the title of this, the State of Sustainable Housing Innovation. Uh, we at the Silicon Valley Leadership Group now have housing and transportation and energy and environment all under sustainable growth. And housing policy is, trans uh, is climate policy as far as I'm concerned. But I want to focus on your focus on sustainable real estate investments. Why real estate and what kind of investments are you making in this sector? So, of the buildings that exist in the United States right now, 80% of them are expecting to be standing in 2050. Real estate is, depending on how you count it, somewhere between a large and a huge 
emitter of greenhouse gases. So in order for us to, there are, there are six big verticals, the built environment's one of them. So if we think that we're gonna solve this problem without addressing that, that cannot happen. So if you think about where we are in that, it's the answer is, I think we're fairly progressive in terms of new builds. California has a lot of rules about new builds, but as I said, 80% of the buildings that are standing right now will still be in use in 2050. So what we're trying to do is show that you can buy buildings, retrofit them, move them to net zero and make money doing it. Not make okay money, make more money. Because you know we're not gonna be able in our wildest dreams to buy every building in the United States of America and retrofit it. That ain't happening. What we need to do is show that if you know what you're doing, that there's a playbook to do it that increases your net operating income, increases your attractiveness to tenants, and therefore makes the building more valuable so that it's better than not doing it. And so, you know, I, as I said two minutes ago, this is about winning in the marketplace. That's what this is about. And everything is about that. So from our standpoint, we need to get better investment returns than other people because we're doing this. And so of course we have to do all the normal real estate things. And let me say one of the things we're not thinking about doing is, you know, when you think about commercial real estate, a lot of people think that what commercial real estate is is office buildings. Well, obviously that's in a huge state of flux. So we're very specifically not addressing that market. So you have said that every company in the future will be a climate company. What do you mean by that? So in 1996, I was working as a full-time professional investor, living in San Francisco, California. And it was when the internet started to really pop in terms from an investment standpoint. So I had a friend who was a venture capitalist who I'd gone to both high school and college with, who's a legit friend of mine, and I called him up and said, you know, what, will you explain to me, take me through the different internet companies? And he goes, well, let me ask you a question, Tom, before I do that. Do you consider yourself an electricity company? And I said, he said, you turn the lights on in the morning. I said, I'm not an electricity company, Roger, you know that. And he said, well, there's no such thing as an internet company. The internet is a tool that gives people an ability to provide other people information, data, services, products. Every company in this country is gonna be an internet company, they just don't know it yet. And that's what I'm saying about climate. If you're in the apparel business, you don't think you're in the climate business, but you are. Because you are part of the emissions and understanding what's going on under your aegis that you're responsible for is something that's gonna happen. You know, Exxon is an internet company. Every company in the United States at this point is an internet company and is using that tool to be much more efficient and effective. Every company in the United States is gonna have to deal with their, their carbon footprint their, and their trajectory in carbon, absolutely. And so that it's just gonna be as ubiquitous as the internet. So, as the 2024 presidential race gets underway, which I know it's early, but in, we have these long cycles in American politics, what's your wish list for a presidential platform on climate? 
Well, let, let's put in perspective for one second the United States' role in climate. So the United States is responsible at this point for about 11% of global emissions. And we've said that we're gonna try to get that down to 50% of 1990 levels by 2030, which at this point I think we're kind of closer to 40%, maybe 42%. But we're 11.5% of global emissions. So if we solve this whole problem in the United States and do exactly what we say, we're gonna get that from 11% to five and a half percent. Europe is, by the way, seven percent, so if they go in half, it'll be three and a half percent. My point being, yes, do we have to do the job that we promised to do in terms of our emissions? Of course we do. And by the way, we're cumulatively the biggest emitter in history. But the role of the United States is definitely gonna be as part of leadership in the international community. Because if you look out to the projections of where the emissions are going to be coming between now and 2050 and where the growth is, it's in parts of the world which have not gone through the same development on energy and other things that the United States has. So for instance, India is supposed to have five times as much electricity generation in 2050 as they do now, 5x. We are not 5Xing our electricity generation between now and 2050, by the way. The, De the Democratic Republic of Congo, which has 100 million people, only has 10 million people who have access to electricity. That's 10X. So the job of the United States, to a great degree, when you think about the solution to these problems, is some combination of technology, finance, and policy. And it is incumbent on us when you say, what do I want the new administration to be representing? It is an awareness that we absolutely have to lead on technology in specific parts very clearly, and we could go into that in more detail. We have to lead in terms of finance, and really we have to be very clear on policy. So when you think about our role we have to be credible in our own country. We have to do the job here, or why would anyone trust us? Why will anyone trust us anyway? The biggest political issue in this is that the people in the northern hemisphere have done the polluting, and now they're saying to the people in the southern hemisphere who are suffering more, you're the problem. And the people in the southern hemisphere are like, what are you talking about, man? So getting that right in all those scales, which is policy, technology, and finance, is what we can do, where we can lead, and where we really can be part of the group of people actually very productively, from an, a positive economic standpoint, giving people solutions that where it's in their interest to do the clean thing. So we had a panel earlier today on ESG, and I've heard you say some quite strong things about ESG, and the panel was ESG numbers versus the noise, what do you have to say about red state officials engaged in the backlash against ESG efforts? So ESG is a very, to me, indeterminate term. And we happen to, for, for very strong personal value, cultural and economic reasons, believe in having a diverse firm that, and we in fact do, and it's intentional and it will always be true of us. But what I say to people is this, look, we're investing in climate solutions. We believe 
that, that, this, that solving this problem is a gigantic tailwind to our investment. That it's an absolutely crucial need, which means that the ability for us to scale and the necessity for us to scale these investments is overwhelming. And therefore, what we're doing is looking at data in the future, figuring out how to take advantage of a problem and solve a problem and getting paid for it. And if you don't think that part of investing, that basically solving human problems, looking at the data and being data-driven is okay, then you're not an investor. Because that's what investing is, is anticipating a future, taking advantage of problems, solving crucial problems, and getting paid for it. And so if you want to pass a law that says you're not allowed to look into the future and anticipate the future, you're basically saying you can't be an investor, which is just dumb. I knew we'd get to a good <laughs> point on that, but agreed. So last question, this has gone, uh, gone fast. Uh, our, our audience includes Silicon Valley business executives, nonprofit executives, and local elected officials and staff. And what message would you have for each of these groups when it comes to how should we be addressing the climate crisis? What role can they play? Look, I think this is an all of society response. I also believe, so I think everybody, you know, I say to people, if you're a banker, you should be a banker with an eye to climate. That should be in your head. If you're a recruiter, that should be in your head. If, you know, everybody in this society is going to have to take into account the need for us to come together around this. So I see this for all the people. I've got four kids, and they do different things but everything that they're doing at some level, they have an awareness of this. And one of them's a pediatrician, but at, at, in how they vote, in how they use, in, in their personal lives, in terms of how they work professionally. I view this as an amazing, I mean personally, but also as a Californian and as American, I view this as an amazing opportunity for me and for us because Look, we're obviously living in a very divided society, multiple ways. And we have a huge task ahead of us, we are, which we absolutely can succeed in. And that rather than talking, if we go about together solving this problem, that is what actually brings people together. And this is exactly what the United States was built for. Stepping up and doing the right thing in the pinch. So I'm a huge fan of responding to this as a gigantic opportunity for us, definitely from a business sense, because I'm a Stanford MBA, I believe in capitalism, but also very much from a civic sense and a human sense about our society in terms of we as a society can solve this together and that it will be a reinforcement of the deepest values we have. I think that's an excellent note to end on. So let's thank Tom yet again for his time today. Silicon Valley Vibes will be back after this quick message. 
I'm Ahmad Thomas, CEO at the Silicon Valley Leadership Group. As part of our acceleration agenda, I'm here to announce SVLG's new working group on responsible AI. It's the first initiative we're rolling out under our new Technology and Innovation Center of Expertise. We recognize the tremendous potential of and profound interest around this new technology, and we're committed to ensuring that AI is developed and implemented in a responsible way. The working group is co chaired by SVLG member companies Google and Johnson & Johnson. As the group takes shape, we look forward to working with industry experts, academics, and other stakeholders to bring diverse voices, perspectives, and disciplines to the table. If you'd like to get involved, please visit svlg.org to learn more. And we're back with the inspiration, with ideation, and with um, alliteration on Silicon Valley vibes. And we're back to SVV. So Nadia, in this next conversation, Michael Regan, the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, sits down for a conversation with SVLG CEO Ahmad Thomas to talk about bringing the private sector into the national challenge of investing in carbon reduction and sharing more about how his unique background impacts his work. You know, Peter, I may say this often, but I'm gonna say it again. Administrator Regan is one of my favorite people in the space, because as you mentioned, he has a very unique background in history, but also I've seen him on a number of stages and he always brings in personal experience perspective into a level of expertise when it comes to speaking about the environment. Definitely one of the exciting members of the cabinet to watch because he's very forward leaning and has a lot of good stuff to say when it comes to removing carbon from the environment, but also making sure that it's done so in a manner that is different and new and innovative at the same time. Let's listen in. Uh, we are thrilled to have you back in California and so truly honored that you join us here today. Well, thank you for having me. I, I hate following Jennifer as well, but you know, <laughs> I think if we could plug Jennifer into our grid, we'd have all the power we need. We'd solve everything. <laughs> so we're going to talk about innovation. We're going to talk about investment and this nexus of economic impact. Uh, for those in the audience, uh, we have about 45 minutes of Q&A here one-on-one. -on -one about 15 minutes for your questions. So get it in on the app, and I'll get to as many questions as we can. And I'll start with the same theme as the secretary on investment, mm -hmm. right? You've got a, a hundred billion plus between Inflation Reduction Act and the bipartisan infrastructure law. Can you talk about where your priorities are around investment and deploying those funds? Well, first of all, I have to say, I'm, I'm thankful for President Biden's leadership because at EPA, uh, most people don't like to see us coming. Uh, you know, the regulator isn't the most popular, uh, but he's given me some walking around money. Sure. Uh, a hundred. Walking around dollars. money. <laughs> walking around money. Okay. And you know, it really does span our mission. Fifty billion of that is focused on shoring up our crumbling water infrastructure and wastewater infrastructure, pulling out every single lead line in this country. Over nine million. People, families are exposed to lead in their drinking water. Uh, $5 billion to electrify our, our yellow school buses. Think about it. The transportation that takes our most precious cargo to school. Uh, $5 billion. We want to electrify our yellow school buses. I'll tell you, I was in Alma, Kansas, uh, not too long ago. Population of less than 5,000 people. A uh, nine-year-old named Brant introduced me and talked about asthma and the importance of riding an electric school bus. 
But just as giddy was the Rural Electric Cooperative and the municipality, because while Brant's in school, they're gonna plug that bus into the grid and smooth out that load, uh, save their customers some money. Um, you know, $27 billion in a greenhouse gas reduction fund where we can really think about how nonprofits and cities and the private sector can help us bring capital off the sidelines and invest in carbon uh, reduction strategies. Uh, you know, something that's really near and dear to my heart, $3 billion, billion would it be to focus on environmental justice and equity, really going to those communities that need these resources the most, these frontline communities, and they're gonna compete for grants that will let them use local solutions to combat pollution and climate change. You know, those are the priorities, right. and they span public health, uh, you know, transportation, uh, the power sector, uh, climate change. It's a really, really rich time to be at EPA. And a busy time for you, and your leadership is, is appreciated right now. And I wanna, I'll double click on a few of those, but we'll start with the greenhouse gas uh, reduction fund, the 27 billion. And maybe the question is, is at a high level when we're talking about leveraging uh, public and private investment, you know, where are those opportunities uh, for success? You know, mm. Can you speak to where you see, especially for our leaders in the room, yeah. you know, the opportunities to leverage public investment with private spend? You know, it's uh, $27 billion. It sounds like a lot of money until you really wrap your head around we're trying to solve an over $2 trillion problem. Right. Uh, so the public-private partnership piece is a necessity. Uh, 20 billion of that, really proud to say that we're gonna design programs uh, where we work with nonprofits, where we work with those who are more experienced in handling and investing resources, where we work with some of these cities who are on the front lines who've already been thinking about how to invest. We're gonna create competitions and grants so that that $20 billion can be invested in the most strategic places in the most strategic ways by people who are experts at handling capital. $7 billion, you're looking at rooftop solar for blue collar and average families all across this country so that they can participate in the clean energy revolution. And so, you know, I think what I'm proud of is we're taking these resources and we're, we're playing the appropriate role of government, which is we are setting the rules of the game, but we're setting those rules in a way that those who are embedded in investment and technology can play, innovate, and be entrepreneurial to make this money go as far as it should go. When you talk to the, the president and, and leaders in Congress, I'm curious that that leverage component, is that you know, understood the power that you have when you can take, you know, I mentioned with the secretary, the applied materials investment, $4 billion, which is leveraged with CHIPS funds and state funds, but I think that multiplier effect is, is significant. Oh. And I don't think we've seen the level of focus around the multiplier effect in public-private partnerships from previous administrations. You haven't. Uh, this is historic. We're living in historic times. Uh, I think this is the wisdom of, of President Biden. When he ran uh, for the presidency, he said that he'd be a president to every single person in this country, uh, that he'd combat the climate crisis head on. Uh, but, you know, he was very, very clear about uh, being bipartisan and focusing on the power of government and the private sector. All of this is coming to fruition. And I think the fun part about my job is the regulator typically doesn't participate 
in the grant and awards game. Mm -hmm. uh, we are typically just setting the rules of engagement and then sort of backing off. We have the opportunity uh, to set those rules of engagement up, leveraging technology and innovation and the like, and then putting our money where our mouths are. As we design these programs to use this $27 billion, we're gonna try to push that out to organizations that will align with those regulations so that we can combat the climate crisis, create jobs, and stay globally competitive. We want this country to remain in that globally competitive position. Right. And we believe that we can do that while we save our children and save the planet. Well, on the topic of, of marginalized communities and equity, I, I wanna make sure to double click on that, the equity action plan. But maybe a personal question and then speaking to that. So you being in this role matters. You know, my uncle went to A&T, we talked about my mom was an RN, uh, dad lifetime, lifelong military, Vietnam vet, you know, very similar to you. Yes. But uh, to see you, an HBCU grad, for my sons to see you in this role, it, it matters, right? And speaks to us. How does that hit you? You know, how, how do you manage through all of that? Maybe it's the personal question. And then the equity action plan is obviously what you're implementing. I'd love you to speak to that, but I, I don't want to dismiss the personal component. Yeah. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm truly grateful for your leadership. Well, thank you for that. And I'll tell you, it's, it's humbling. Uh, there, there's not a day that I don't walk into the office and, and, and forget that. I, I'm very mindful of that. And I'm a person of, of faith, and I, I think that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm blessed. God has, has provided me with this opportunity to do something that's bigger than just me. And so as I travel the country, um, I see how people from all walks of life look at me differently. And it's an honor. Because of the role? Because of the yeah. role. Because I, I, the first black man to lead the EPA, a lot of people would you know, lead folks to believe that African-Americans and minorities are not interested in the environment, they don't mm. know or participate in the environment. Um, and so people who occupy these positions that we occupy uh, don't typically look like us. Mm. And I think it's a reflection of the advancement of this country that all people, irrespective of the color of your skin or how much money you have in your pocket, uh, can really do any job that you put your mind to. And so I'm, I'm grateful for that. And what I try to do is, is inspire people uh, as I travel the country by saying, if you work hard, you can achieve your goals, no matter what people are telling you. And they believe it because I look atypical. Mm -hmm. So there's that power right. in able, being able to do that, whether it's for young girls or whether it's for African-American males, it, it doesn't really matter. You can really harness the difference mm -hmm. because there is a difference in this situation. Um, you know, in terms of environmental justice and equity, uh, you know, leadership starts at the top. Uh, the president said from day one that every single thing he did would serve as a rising tide for all communities. He's the first president to talk about environmental justice, first sitting president to talk about environmental justice during the State of the Union address. So this is something that is very serious to him and is near and dear to my heart. And so I feel like I can run as fast as I can. We have reorganized our agency and created a national program with 200 people, 200 people whose job solely is to focus on environmental justice and equity across the board. Uh, we have made EJ a part of EPA's DNA. <laughs> I and, like that. And, and the staff love it. Yeah. They love it because they're there to protect the planet 
but they love it because they know that they're doing it in a way that protects everyone. And so we're a small but mighty organization because of the culture, the beliefs, and what we're trying to do. And it's easier because we're serving a president that believes in it. And do you believe that that belief system is changing, understanding how important it is to uplift all communities, understanding really the, the structural challenges environmentally that take decades to undo? You know, and you've only been in this role of a brief period in that broader scheme of things. I, I believe so. I, I think that um, whether I'm in Lowndes County, Alabama, uh, predominantly black county, where you see a disproportionate impact in terms of a lack of water infrastructure, mm -hmm. or, 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 you know, or whether I'm in McDowell County, West Virginia, the heart of Appalachia, where you see the exact same thing happening to a predominantly white community because of their income status. Uh, as we have designed our environmental justice and equity programs, we've been very strategic to show whether you're Native American, Hispanic, white, or black, or um, you know, Asian, any of our cultures, uh, that there are folks who are having a tougher time and that our environmental laws and investments should create a rising tide for every single person in this country. So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to shape that. And I believe that if we reorganize, which we've done, and I believe if we infuse capital at a fast enough rate over these four years, it'd be very hard to dial that back. And more people in this country will be better off because of that. That's well said. That's worth a round of applause. Now, we, we very much appreciate that. I want to ask one more question on equity and then pivot to innovation. You have jurisdiction over a wide array of, of different pollutants. Um, you know, obviously, you have uh, communities of color that have been disproportionately uh, impacted environmentally. Can you speak to when you look at pollution reduction in some of your areas of focus where you're seeing progress and opportunity? You know, I feel very thankful that I've come along in a time where there are technological solutions. And, you know, I have been heartened in my conversations with the private sector uh, around pollution control technologies and best management practices uh, that may have not been available in the past. And having these tough conversations with the private sector from day one has helped me realize if we tweak the design of our regulations in a way that's more conducive to innovation, extending a little bit of trust, but on the back end having those verification processes, the private sector can meet the moment. And we're seeing that happen in the automobile transportation sector. We're even seeing that happen in the petrochemical uh, sector as well. The technologies exist, uh, the, the business models are there. Uh, quite frankly, um, uh, we just have to have the will to do right by all people. And, and I'll be honest with you, we at EPA have decided that we're going to use the power of the media and social media to, to shine a light on where this isn't happening. And, and I can guarantee you a, a lot of it does require action by EPA, but a lot of it is once that light shines on those who are not doing the right thing, somehow, some way, they find the resources to do the right thing. That's what we want them to do. Right. Well. You know, I think when you look around this room at the innovators, our leading companies, leading technology companies in the Valley, this is part of our ethos. I often talk about a new era of Silicon Valley leadership. 
environmental stewardship is a core uh, component of that. And when we talk about technology and the technology that, that's propelling us, I want to shift to EVs. Mm. And maybe we can double click on the uh, school buses. Yeah. You know, when you spoke about your experience and the young boy with asthma, uh, can you speak to where you are focused connected to EV deployment and also share updates around the school buses? Well, you know, I, I think the, the, the reason I love telling the Alma, Kansas story is because uh, we keep hearing from certain groups of people uh, that EVs are not designed for our rural constituency, uh, that EVs aren't designed for moderate to low income. And we know that as this technology evolves and as we design our regulations and as we infuse these tax credits and other things from this historic legislation, that electric vehicles will be available for people all over this country. And so my focus is on the technology, making sure that our regulations accurately capture uh, the ability of these technologies, uh, but doing it in a way where we pay constant attention to cost benefit. Uh, we pay constant attention to if we push on our regulation, will the infrastructure be there? How do we match those things so that all people in this country have access to this new, uh, this new clean transportation economy. Uh, I, I think we try to, at EPA, this EPA, we, we try to ensure that all of our regulations and all of our policies move as quickly as possible, embracing technology and innovation and demonstrating that you can do good and financially do well at the same time, and you don't have to leave anyone behind. Uh, it's a work in progress. Right. Uh, but we're seeing a lot of momentum here, and that goes for our power sector, that goes for our oil and gas sector. I just have some of the best conversations with innovators behind the scenes in some of these supposedly hard industries. And it's leaders like those in this room that are making these conversations easier to have, and I'm thankful for that. You don't talk like a regulator, <laughs> which, I, which I really like. And maybe on that, that question of innovation and technology, what are the technologies that are exciting you the most? You know, when you think about climate and where you, where you see the most opportunity. You know, I was at a, a CIRA conference in, in Houston not, not too long ago. Um, and when you think about the oil and gas sector and, and you look at this AI technology, you look at these robotic dogs, you, you look at all of this technology that's gonna sniff out these emissions and really help us you know, look at the data more closely and maximize the reduction of methane in the oil and gas sector, things like that get me excited. When I'm talking to a rural electric cooperative and they're excited about a yellow school bus because they know during the day it's gonna be parked and their members, their membership is gonna benefit from a more efficient energy delivery uh, when I think about the power sector and all these clean technologies that are on the horizon, clean fuels, it's exciting. And, you know, a lot of times we think that our farmers are not in the game. You know, the precision agriculture game is so hot right now. Right. And when you look at what can be done to more efficiently feed this country, but reduce the amount of pesticide and herbicide and runoff, it's amazing. And so as a regulator, I am very well aware of the power of a regulation. Sure. Uh, but if I can match that 
with the innovation and the brilliance from the people out here in this audience. It's a win-win all day long. Right. I, I think that's so well put. Yeah. And you know, I, I'm very curious listening to you, and, and, and I know your bio well, and I, I'm sure most in the audience do, but can you speak to where this spirit comes from, the spirit to be very focused on innovation and finding solutions that are, are business positive, yet also benefit all communities? I think I'm, I'm just young enough, you know, the Nintendo, the Atari, <laughs> you know, technology has always been of interest right. to me. And what was burned into my brain is the conversations I've had with my parents. Mm. And I remember when I first started working at EPA, I was visiting with my parents and um, I had a cell phone, I had a Blackberry. And my dad was saying, it's amazing that you're not in the office on that piece of machinery conducting business all across the country. When just a few years ago, you know, the, the army had just given me a beeper. Right. And he, he talked about how powerful that was as a young EPA employee to have a piece of technology that could do work much differently than just five, 10, 15 years ago. And so as I learned more about the agency, I quickly realized, especially in our air office, we call them regulations. I like to call them technology standards. Mm. If we really look at these standards, they are technology standards. They're supposed to endear innovation. They're supposed to create entrepreneurial opportunities. They're just supposed to give some guideposts on how to do it and make sure you protect public health. So if we really embody the true purpose of a water or air regulation, it really is to encourage the latest and greatest technologies, the best data, and make sure that they're equally protective of everyone in this country. I don't see another way to do this job if we don't embrace the private sector and technology. We don't get the job done, which is making sure that if your child has asthma, that they are exposed to the least amount of pollution so that they can go to school, they can learn and be positive, productive citizens in this country. That's really what it's all about. So how can the technology executives, the leaders in this room, how can we add the most value for you and your role at EPA when you talk about advancing uh, new frontier technologies? Where are the opportunities for partnership that are, are most valuable from, from your perspective as administrator? I, I think we need to have more conversations. Mm -hmm. And I, I believe uh, that I've tried to open up our agency to invite members into the agency and have conversations before we start designing regulations. Um, I, if you look at- uh, Not after the fact, trying to be proactive. Not after yeah. the fact. Right. You know, we, we love to get your comments, <laughs> but it's better to be on the design side of the equation. And so if the government could do a better job of having a two-way conversation and then having that bleed into the design of these regulations, the comment period should just be the smoothing over and we should be coming out with products that are good for business and good for the, uh, the environment. And, and so I, I just try to stay out and about as much as possible. You can't do this job from behind the seat in Washington, D.C. You have to be out, hear the thoughts and ideas of people, and then go back and impart that in the agency. That, that's the best thing. We have to just have a better relationship. Well, on the lessons learned relationship, the regulatory standpoint, 
I'll pick one example, which are power plants, where I know it is a, a, a space with layers of, of challenges. Uh, I would love it if you could speak to, to that example around regulation and lessons learned and obviously the work and focus connected to power plants. I can say that uh, when, when the president first appointed me, uh, I started a conversation with the power sector. And it went something like, instead of dying by a thousand paper cuts, why not partner with me and let's think about the most pressing regulations that have to come out in the next couple of years. Maybe we expedite some and then I'll bundle them, not they'll be individual, but we'll bundle the time frame, and then you will be able to assess the economic impact of these four or five regulations as opposed to guessing over a number of years. What we found out is whether it was a mercury air toxic standard or a 111 rule or something that dealt with affluent guidelines for wastewater, if we put all of these rules on a similar track and then solicited their input, they had an opportunity to help refine all of these rules and maximize the environmental co-benefits while looking at the economic impacts. So fast forward two and a half years, we've rolled out five to six rules that I believe um, you know, really do maximize the environmental opportunity in the power sector, but also has previewed to the power sector where their investments should go if they want to be profitable moving forward. And, and I think that that is forcing the industry to, to not settle, but to really say, because of long-term investment opportunities, and we know directionally where all these regulations are going, we can make long-term investments. We can make smarter decisions. Mm -hmm. We can really take uh, the plunge and invest in some of these technologies that we know will pay off five, six, seven years down the road. It's about that predictability. Right. Now it's time for the Silicon Valley Vibes wrap out for Peter and Nadia to give their take and a little takeaway. And so that was the conversation. You know, two cabinet level officials in person in Silicon Valley talking about the most pressing episodes and issues of the day. Nadia, I agree. The challenges raised in the Sustainability Growth Summit are challenges we face together. The event brought national leaders and business executives into the same room and I'm left with the lesson that we all need to be thinking and acting on climate issues. And that wraps up this episode of Silicon Valley Vibes. Please like, share, and subscribe. And remember, with millions of stories in Silicon Valley, you can't always get all the details, but you can get the vibes right here on Silicon Valley Vibes. And please tune in to season two starting this fall. Thank you everyone for all the support. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this very special bonus episode of Silicon Valley Vibes Season 1. And as Peter mentioned, get ready for Season 2 this fall. But how about a hand for the amazing humans and AIs who made our show this season? They are our human executive producer, Chuck Dickinson. Audio mastering is by the human R.R. Robbins. This entire podcast is presented and produced by the humans at the Silicon Valley Leadership Group. AI music provided by SoundRaw. Recording production support provided by the platform Riverside FM. Your AI announcer, me, Vivi, is provided by Eleven Labs. And with that, I'm off on my summer break to the places AIs go for fun. Codenhagen, Denmark, Spamcouver, Canada, maybe even Atlanta. Goodbye work, Vivi. Hello, vacation, Vivi.